Well, hopefully you all got some good rest last night, and hopefully you got some good food, and now you have enough good coffee to make it through this talk. Um, today, this first talk is going to, or this talk today is going to be on just some of the kind of the basics. We did some last night, uh, but are those more just kind of shotgun throwing things in your direction? This is going to be maybe a little bit more directed. Nothing better than when the priest shows up with about seven books in a stack, and you're like, uh-oh. What's going to happen? So, yep, we're just going to go through all of these, just just briefly, each of them. No, I'm kidding. Um, but to start off, just going back to the prayer I made, I, well, I didn't make it, I stole it from St. Augustine. Our hearts, sorry, Lord, you have made us for you. Literally, Lord, you have made us toward you, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Most people know that. They might not know it's Augustine, but that's a famous line out of his, uh, his confessions. Um, but it's true. We are made for God. Uh, and our hearts are restless uh, until they rest in him. And we, as we know from our little Catholic catechism, those who went through the 92 questions and Baltimore catechisms have all heard these sort of things, you know, that we are made to know, love, and serve God. That's, that's why we're here. But as we talked a little bit last night, Jesus is how we know and even how we see God. That's why he was sent, so that we can know and love God by seeing him face-to-face, as Jesus tried to explain to Thomas and to Philip last night in two different ways, you know, that that is, that's why we're here. And, you know, at Christmas, um, obviously Easter is the highlight of the year. It is the pinnacle of our liturgical year. But I really love Christmas, and not just because presents and, you know, pageantry, but even the prayers. I love the prayers, like the preface for Christmas night, you know, um, that we might see um, our God made visible so we might be caught up in love of the God who is invisible. Um, so Jesus is truly that way, and if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. Um, so, uh, you know, the reason why I bring that up is that when we look into Scripture and we let it teach us, uh, you know, we said we don't want that to become strictly academic, you know, but there's something about the fact that by going into that, we are getting to know Jesus, which means we're going to get to know God. So you're actually growing in your prayer life when you learn. Learning and digging doesn't lose anything uh, about Jesus. Sometimes people fear if I study too much, if I learn too much, if I, if I make this too much of an intellectual enterprise, you know, well then it won't be real prayer. You can make it that way. I mean, anything can be made an idol, right? You know, but, but if the goal is to know Jesus better or even to know the other parts of the scriptures better, that's not going to make our prayer life worse. Now, a, a person can, again, make that their own idol. I have to be careful to be like, am I just thinking like, ooh, that's a cool thought. You know, I can't wait to share that nugget at Mass. And you're like, that nugget doesn't help anybody. That's just a cool little factoid from like, you know, second century B.C. Judaism. Nobody needs that. Um, but that might not be true. Maybe the people don't need it, but maybe I need that. Maybe that actually helped me to be like, oh, that click makes makes sense of something um and and the reason why it's worth learning and digging in is that in any relationship there can be misunderstanding and there can be false assumptions and so when we get to know jesus better we're actually improving that relationship because we're clarifying like oh i always took it that way but it didn't really mean that um or oh Now that I see that aspect, it's kind of like, you know, you might have had a friend for years, but until you knew this part of their story, or even be married to somebody, until you see this aspect of their personality, you don't know them as well as you did after, um, I'm sorry, you you didn't know them as well as you thought until after that had happened. Um, So it's important for us to realize that studying scripture, you know, is not bad. Um, It's not a history versus faith kind of thing, and that we're going to lose, you know, the Jesus of our religion if we learn about Jesus is a first century Jewish man talking to first century Jews about first century Jewish problems. Um, it doesn't take it away. It actually gives us a richer vi- vision of Jesus, which helps us actually know him better in the 21st century. And it's not a liberal or a conservative kind of thing. It's knowing the real Jesus. The one thing that is interesting is that, um, you know, the whole Bible, of course, is meant to point in his direction. And that is a little bit different because sometimes, you know, like, you think of other books that we might really enjoy. I, I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd, um, so I like Tolkien and that sort of stuff. And so I like to dig in the weeds, and I can might have my favorite character in a book other than, like, the Lord of the Rings, the big famous one. I might like some elf of three ages ago and think, like, that's my favorite story. The, the Bible doesn't quite work that way because 
it all points back to Jesus. So, you know, the good news is that we'll never be too far lost if you just suddenly be like, man, I sure like the prophets. That's great because the prophets are still going to point you back to Jesus. You're not going to lose um, the main story there. Um, okay, so at this point, I'm just going to jump into some things. These are kind of basics. You probably know some of it, but it's good to be reminded. When we're reading scripture, context is key. Any verse we read always is going to be in the midst of a chapter. And if we're not sure what the verse means, or if we're trying to put our own little spin on the verse, sometimes we need to be like, okay, what's the rest of the chapter say? In its bigger context, what's it saying? And any chapter is part of a bigger book, except for the letter of Jude, where the chapter is the book, because it's only one chapter. Um, but, you know, it, it's that, when you're, when you're, okay, how do I understand this? Go bigger, right? Isn't that always the problem when we look at, like, different denominations? Like, when they zoom in on just, like, one line in Paul. I mean, the, the classic evangelical line is that if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's, like, a standard, you know, they're knocking on your doorstep. Have you met Jesus? Have you been saved? Do you know where you'll go when you'll die? I do, because it says, if I confess on my lips and believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord, I will be saved. Okay, that's a true line. There are no false lines of scripture. But, like, what's the context of that line in the chapter? What's the context of that chapter in the book? Romans is all about how do you become part of the family of God. And the whole rest of the book is saying that it's not just a one-time, you know, Lord, I'm a sinner, save me, but that it's actually becoming part of his family. And then even that book is in the midst of a whole Bible, right? You know, we don't read James against Peter, right? Faith versus works. Um, We don't read, you know, John against Matthew, the law versus love. We don't do that, right? I mean, we read them and appreciate what they have to say to us and then be like, and there's another side to this. The the scriptures are this, this gem that we can keep turning in different ways in the light to see different angles, you know, coming off of it. And that gives us you know, new stuff. And this is why we can read scriptures for 50 years and and still find new things in there. Um, And then even that, even the whole Bible still is read in the context of a whole faith, right? That that the, the Christian faith, you know, gives us ways to understand that. So if a person was like, I'm still confused. How is Jesus like the Father, not like the Father? The Bible seems confusing on this. It is, right? Because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. But then he also says, you know, the Father is greater than I, and he says that I don't know even the time of the end of the world. You're like, how does that work, right? Luckily, we've got a whole faith, and we've got, you know, really smart guys who worked for a long time and wrote a lot of creeds to help us understand how that works. So we've always got those layers of verse, chapter, book, Bible, faith to to give us direction. Other things that can be really helpful is to look at the form of the scripture we're reading, meaning like what style is it? And you've probably heard this before. That, you know, this, is, this is a good way for us to understand, <laughs> let's be honest, the two weird books are at the bookends, Genesis and Revelation, right? And those are the ones that get people messed up. Those are where, where most of our fights are. Why do evangelicals constantly have fights with a secular world and scientists? Because of those two books, right? You know, they're either sitting around waiting for the rapture, which isn't in the Bible, um, you know, because that's how they misread Revelation, or they're sitting around assuming that the only way Genesis can be true is if God made the world in exactly six 24-hour days as we know them today. And so you have... Bill Nye, the science guy, arguing with Ken Ham about evolution on national t- TV um, because there's no question of form. For the, the school kids, I always have them think about the newspaper, right? The front page, you look at the front page for information. We know it can have a bias, but it, you expect it to at least tell you like what actually went down. We can debate whose fault it is that a bomb went off in Syria, but a bomb went off and people got hurt, right? You turn a couple pages in to the opinion page, we know not to treat that like the front page, right? Because you could literally have one person screaming their head off about the new stop sign in town. I live in Wahoo. Um, yeah, it's a small town. These are, what we, these are the things we fight about. You know, was the stop sign a good idea or not? Um, you know, so you have a whole column of somebody arguing about, is the stop sign a good idea? And then it's, it's not a good idea. And the next person is saying, this is the best thing that ever happened to our town, right? So we know to treat the opinion page 
differently than the front page, right? And then you get to the sports page, you're like, hmm, it's a mix, because I live in Nebraska, right? You know? So the sports page is going to try and tell me about the football team, but it's also be like either ridiculously rah-rah, like, you know, now we worship Scott Frost as God, you know, or um, ridiculously, like, over the top, like, it's time for the coach to go, you know, we've led to a, you know, mediocrity, you know, these sort of things. And then I get to the comics page, which everyone knows is total junk, right? I mean, like, Garfield. Garfield's a lie, right? I mean, he's a cat that eats lasagna. Uh, they do sleep all day, but they don't sleep in a little box wrapped up in, in, a, in a little blanket. You know, he's kicking the dog off the counter. Cats are mean, but not like that. You know, I mean, like, the whole thing is utterly false. But the thing you have to ask yourself is, what are the different forms? Because the comics tell us all sorts of lies about cats, Cats hate Mondays. Cats don't know it's Monday. Um, you know, but what actually Garfield tells us about is nothing about cats and everything about humans. Because Garfield is lazy, gluttonous, cruel, right? That tells you about human beings. We don't like Mondays. We like to sleep in. We like lasagna. We like to kick, you know, people we don't like off the counter. Not really. You know, but like, you know, we, we are Garfield, Garfield is telling us about humans, not about cats. And so the question you have to answer when you read a certain part of scripture is, what is its literary form? Is it trying to give me, like, minute-by-minute news updates, like the AP does? Is it trying to give me, you know, kind of a biased report of what you need to do? Or is it telling it in a different way? Remember, using Genesis, God is writing 6,000 years ago for a bunch of semi-barbarian nomadic goat herders, right? So using numbers like the world is 13, or the universe is 13.7 billion years old, and Earth is 4.5 billion years old, like, they got 10 fingers and 10 toes. A hundred is a hard thing to fathom and actually be able to reasonably count. Thousands and hundreds of thousands just isn't going to happen, right? You know, they don't have any idea about, like, you know, cell structure, let alone DNA. So when you're describing things about, like, how life comes to be, there, it'd be crazy if God tried to describe it in modern scientific terms. But if actually, credit where credit is due, if you think about it, if you come in with the knowledge of science but then read the Bible with an open mind, kind of a Garfield mind, you can find that it's actually fascinatingly accurate, right? What's it say? That in the beginning, there's nothing, and then something happens, suddenly and fast and full of light, and then out of that then develop planets and stars, including our own planet, and then eventually, as time goes on, and like, oh, I don't know, maybe it cools down, then water and water vapor and clouds develop, the sea and the sky, and then you start to get, like, things swimming in the water, and then creepy crawly things on the earth, and then bigger mammals on the earth, and then humans. If you wanted to tell the kind of modern scientific story of of the making of the universe, the world, and human beings, that's pretty accurate. Big Bang followed by, you know, the the progression of the earth cooling down, followed by life bit by bit. I'm not saying that Genesis 1 is about evolution, but if you need to explain evolution to barbaric goat herders, it's not a bad way to go, right? Or even explaining human beings, Genesis 2, right? So God comes down to earth and he scoops up mud, makes a little mud pie, shapes it into a human, hollows out the nostrils, breathes in the nostrils, boom, the first man. Again, you know, uh, that doesn't really line up with our modern scientific ideas. But what's it saying? That there, the man is made of something of earth and something not of earth, right? The animals are made the same way, right? Pigeon, snake, giraffe. Um, and, you know, so they have the same earth, but they don't have that spirit. There's no breath into their nostrils. They are matter, but not spirit. They are something of earth, but not something of heaven, the way the man is. Um, and even if you think about it, gosh, we're going to be, you know, nitty-gritty. Um, okay, human beings are mostly made of water. Okay, so take out the water, so we're 75% water. Then, okay, just our dry parts. Um, what, is our, what are humans mostly made out of in terms of, like, dry elements? Carbon, right? We're carbon-based elements. So you take carbon. So humans are mostly made of carbon and water, which is basically dirt and water. What is the man made out of? Mud, carbon, and water, right? So, like, even right there, like, it's actually pretty accurate. We are a water-carbon mixture with divine breath in us. 
Again, if you need to tell this story to people 6,000 years ago, that's a pretty cool way to do it. And the funny thing is, I don't think people actually thought it was meant to be word for word. In fact, there's this famous place where St. Augustine warns people of his time um, to not take Genesis and Revelation too literally, lest they be brought into disrepute among the pagans who are thinking more scientifically. So even 2,000 years ago, you had the Bill Nye the science guy versus the fundamentalist guy. Uh, And Augustine is saying, don't be the fundamentalist. So, like, so literary form helps that. Jonah. Now, Jonah's an interesting one because Jesus actually quotes Jonah, or refers to him, I should say. Um, and there's always this question, could you really live three days in the belly of a whale? You know, could you even get in the whale? Is this even possible? You know, those sort of things. And, you know, Nineveh is such a big city, it takes three days to walk through. Like, you could even cross New York City in three days walking. Like, come on. Uh, you know, those sort of things. But back up a second. It's interesting, the guy who actually wrote the uh, um, uh, commentary on Jonah in the Jerusalem Bible is none other than J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien knows forms, because he's used to that from his Anglo-Saxon literature days. And he points out that Jonah doesn't read like any other prophet. Like, think of how Jonah's written. It's a story. Amos isn't a story. Isaiah's not a story. Jeremiah has the most story bits, but nobody else writes like that. Jonah's written like a book-length parable. And then you're like, and it reads like one too, right? Jesus tells parables. He tells somewhat crazy fictional stories to make people think differently. Like the guy chasing after the sheep, right? Or the prodigal son. Or the, you know, the tenants that we heard about last night, right? He, he gives us a story that makes us think about the world. It's a Garfield moment. Jonah's a Garfield moment, too. You've got this guy who's actually a super good preacher. I mean, he converts Nineveh, um, who, like, runs away because he doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He's a jerk. He's got talent but no heart, right? So he runs away, and God says, nope, you got to do this. And so he forces him back. And when he gets there, he goes and preaches. And Nineveh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the country that conquered the northern ten tribes, deported them, and wiped them off the face of the earth. Nineveh is not going to repent when Jonah shows up. Up. Jonah, the Jew boy from Jerusalem, showing up is not going to convert them, right? No. But it tells us that they are. And then what happens? The story isn't about the fish, and the story's not about them converting. The story is chapters 3 and 4, when Jonah's sitting out there waiting, hoping for Nineveh to be destroyed in fire, and God decides to save it. And he's like, Ugh, I knew you were a merciful God. Why did you save them? Why did you have me come if you were just going to save them? He's like, Jonah, this is the point. You're an idiot. You're a merciful jerk who wants these people to die because they're not Jewish. Right? The, 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 the parable, and if you've ever seen the uh, VeggieTales, it does a great job on this. VeggieTales on Jonah is as excellent, um, Jonah and the Big Fish, um, because it has the whole story of the gourd, the gourd that shades Jonah, and then it goes away, and Jonah's like, yeah, I am mad. You gave me shade, and then you took it away. And God's like, yeah, I can be merciful. Why are you mad when I'm merciful? What's your problem, Jonah? So, if anything, I think we should read Jonah not as a prophet or as a history story, but as, as somebody telling the Jewish people, you have become caught up in your national identity to the point that you literally don't want God to save the other nations, and that you are the problem in the Jonah story, not the Ninevites. Because otherwise, literally, the story makes almost no sense. Another example, um, you know, in Revelation, you know, we, we look at Revelation and we try and, like, we become fundamentalist Protestants trying to read it and figure out, like, what does it all mean? When's the day of the Lord? When's it all coming to an end? But that's not how it's written. And in fact, really until about the 1200s, most Christians, at that point Catholics, didn't read it that way. They either read it as directly having to do with the time it's written, 70 to 95 AD, or being this big picture thing of the entire Christian story. If you've read Scott Hahn's The Lamb's Supper, he takes that second one. And that's actually the most common reading by Christian uh, and, and especially Catholic church fathers um, throughout, the, throughout the really 1,200 years until the Middle Ages. Jaco, Joachim de Fiore, I think, is the first one who changes that. Um, but so that tells us that it's actually telling the whole Christian story. In fact, the argument is that the book of Revelation is the Gospels in another form. And if you walk through it and see that it's a question of like, trial and tribulation, being united to Jesus' death on the cross, and then like victory and glory through the cross, including for the saints on earth, the, 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 the church, you're like, oh, it's just saying that 
in every generation, there is a paschal uh, mystery. In every generation, you have Jesus suffering, dying, and achieving victory. His martyrs suffer, die, and receive victory. And we, in our own days, are called to suffer, maybe die in a certain sense, and achieve victory. So it, it, it has, you know, you have to look what is the form rather than being a script, a movie script of how is the end of the world going to come about. Psalms. We'll talk more about the Psalms in, in, in a little bit. Um, Psalms, uh, we, we, we touched on them just even last night with Psalm 88. The Psalms can be hard because you have to kind of get in the right m- mood for them. This is a little book that I found in Philadelphia. It's called My Daily Psalm Book. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an old school. It's like in the 1940s or 50s. Um, and it's... Uh, 47. Um, and it's, it literally takes the Psalms. It does them in the order of the old, like the 1962 Latin Psalter. It's English, though. Um, but it takes it from the one week of the Liturgy of the Hours. And it, goes, it has an English translation. And it has pictures. You're going to find out I love pictures. Um, and it's great because the pictures help you to understand. So, like, there's this place where, like, um, the guy is, like, um, kneeling in the middle of the desert. And that's because the psalm is talking about uh, this. There's this picture right here. Um, there's the high priest um, giving thanks to God. There's a king holding up his sword. It's a prayer of thanksgiving for victory uh, granted to a king in battle. Um, it has a mix of, like, kind of Old Testament things and kind of uh, uniquely um, uh, Christian things. And so it really is good because it gives an image to go with the Psalms. Again, it doesn't match exactly the order of um, the book anymore, um, but even just to have somebody looking like, ah, that goes with that. So it's kind of cool. I don't know if you can get them else, elsewhere, uh, but yeah, just, it's arranged by Father Frey, F-R-E-Y. Um, it's like a little $7 book, or at least it was 15 years ago. Um, but the Psalms are, are, are a great place for us to, you know, it's a different form, but they work for us in a certain way. I'll, I'll come back, you know, more on them uh, a little bit later. Other tools that I want to share with you to kind of help appreciate this. Um, I mentioned earlier having my one-year Bible, uh, you know, mark it up. It's, it's just a great way, you know, to bit by bit, you know, force yourself to use it. The problem with the one-year Bible is it's not going to give you a lot of tools. Where do you get your other information? Um, this is where people always ask about different um, Bible versions. The RSV is really, really um, word-for-word accurate. It also has, like, next-to-no footnotes, and I find it a pain in the rear to read. Um, so you'll get people who just love the RSV, like, oh, it's so authentic, it's so accurate. You're like, yeah, if you already know a lot of Greek or you really know your scriptures well, it's good, but I actually find it really hard for the average person to read. Um, the New American Bible, our one that we were looking at last night, this is the one that's closest to um, what you hear on Sundays. It's the one that's used in other, like, liturgies that we have. It has pretty good footnotes. I recommend the NAB for most people, the New American Bible. Um, the other one that plays in there is the Jerusalem Bible. Jerusalem Bible is harder to read in one sense because the lines are more paraphrased than word-for-word translated, which means it sounds different, and it doesn't always give you the exact wording, but it has killer footnotes. With that in mind, never buy the Jerusalem Bible Reader's Edition because it doesn't have the footnotes, and that's why you buy a Jerusalem Bible is for the footnotes. So if you ever see an insanely large Bible with a little Jerusalem cross on it at a garage sale, snag it. Um, even if all you do is read the footnotes out of it, it's worth having on your shelf. Um, but it might not be the easiest one to read directly. Um, I'm going to give a shout-out right now. So this is an interesting Bible. This is the Quest Bible for Teens. This is an NIV, which is very close to an NAB. I'm using a lot of acronyms. This is the New International Version, which is a Protestant Bible, very close to the New American Bible. Um, But I have to admit, it's got the best footnotes I've ever seen. Um, And specifically, it's the Quest Study Bible for Teens. Um... I really, it's funny, I I looked at the adult one, the adult one's not nearly as good. Um, This has better, it probably has the same footnotes, but it has other things. It has literally these these kind of breaks where it talks about big ideas, and the big ideas are like hyperlinked to each other. So like if you read, it says literally, for the next article, go to this one. For the next article in big idea number two, jump to here. So it literally 
gives you like um, uh, hypertext links from there and there. And it also has cool things like um, it gives a lot of maps. It gives a lot of uh, like, uh, what do you call it? Timelines. It even has like interviews, which is kind of hilarious, but really handy. Like it does an interview with Ruth and it asks, you know, because Ruth's like, well, you know, my problems aren't that bad. I at least have my mom and my sister-in-law. And she kind of just like walks you through her story, kind of Oprah-esque. And I have to admit, it's actually really cool. It is a Protestant Bible. So when you get to the footnotes in like Romans and Galatians, it's going to be very much the evangelical Protestant idea about salvation. So just like skip those. Um, but like otherwise it is a really, if you're looking for like where to start, I would actually recommend this. This would literally, if you like, I want to do a Bible study, I want to be able to understand what's going on in Paul and other places. This is actually a really good one. Um, Somebody told me that they're not making them anymore. I think what it means is they're going to make a new version, you know, like your new model car. You know, we're getting rid of all the 2017 so we can get the 2018s in. Um, other tools. And I know I'm in more teacher mode right now, but I'm just going to dump them all at once. Uh, today we listened to that excerpt from The Temptation of Jesus from uh, Jesus of Nazareth by uh, Pope Benedict XVI. Um, he is a great. He's also Pope Benedict, right? So he writes very well, but he also knows all the stuff. So sometimes you're like, man, I totally get you. Because I think he actually writes easier than John Paul II. But he also then like, throws out like German authors we've never heard of. And you're like, I don't know. Um, but he's... Uh, he, this, this is actually a, a fairly readable read, I think, for most people. Don't be surprised if you read the prologue and you're lost, because he's kind of catching people up with Bible scholarship of the last 75 years. If you need to just skip, skip to his baptism, that's okay. Um, in the same boat, um, To Know Christ Jesus by Frank Sheed um, is probably in the last 100 years maybe the best one-volume Catholic Get to know Jesus better book I've ever seen. Um, unfortunately, I don't have this one on audiobook, um, but I might actually share some of his ideas as we go along in, in different ways. Um, and then the other audiobook I'm going to share with you, there's a guy named N.T. Wright. You might have heard of him before. N.T. Wright is uh, actually an Anglican bishop. Uh, he's, uh, at least he last was the Bishop of Durham in northern England. Um, he, he's not a Catholic, but I think he is arguably the best scripture scholar today who can write at both an insanely high academic level and also write normal books for normal people. So like he wrote this giant 500 page book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is probably the best book in the last hundred years, like defending the belief in the resurrection. But like nobody wants to read that who doesn't have to. Um, but then he writes these other books like called Simply Christian, which is kind of an updated version of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Uh, his Challenge of Jesus is a great one. You're actually going to hear part of that at one of these meals. Um, I would say the very first thing to start with with N.T. Wright, if you want to try him, is um, uh, How God Became King, which is his study of the four Gospels. Um, and he also does, he has a series of the kind of For Everybody series, so it's like Romans for Everybody. Um, I, I really like it. You do have to take him with a grain of salt because he's not a Catholic. Um, and so he's going to approach things a little differently, especially on some questions of, like, uh, what does faith mean? But actually, if you think he, like, drives Catholics crazy on salvation, he way more drives crazy the fundamentalists. They don't like him because the idea of, like, once saved, always saved and stuff like that, he blows it up from the get-go, and they don't like that. Um, also, his ideas about what it's like at the end of time, would not necessarily line up exactly with ours. But you can get amazing stuff. He is probably the best scholar, maybe ever, on first century Judaism and helping us understand when Jesus says this in this way, in this time, what's he actually saying? And I will build his stuff into a lot of things. So think of it this way. Frank Sheed is like 1940s, 50s, 60s Catholic stuff. Um, and then you've got uh, Pope Benedict, which is more modern and academic stuff, but still very readable. And then N.T. Wright is not Catholic, but super cool insights into uh, early um, Christianity and late um, Judaism. Okay. So the reason why I mention those is what they all do is what we want to find ourselves doing, which is once you have a sense of like context and form, is what's called a close reading. And what that really just means is reading carefully. <laughs> Scholars have to have fancy terms. But what that means is reading carefully with other things in mind, letting connections be made. This is the idea of getting to know God uh, in this way so that I can get more out of it. Um, and it can be something as simple as like, boom, new context changes this. Or it can be literally that flip the entire thing on its head. If you have your Bible, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
for those who aren't really good with the Paul letters, after Acts, it's Romans and then the two Corinthians. So just find the Gospels and they go, Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. So we hear 1 Corinthians very much during our, our church year. Um, usually we hear it out of context and we get lost. Um, but that's, that's okay. We're going to give you some direction here. Um, but I want you to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. It's a pretty famous passage. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of human eloquence, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its meaning. So right there he presents, there's human eloquence and wisdom and the cross. And right, so that's, and, and you might already be like, oh, I kind of remember this part. Let's keep going. The message of the, Christ, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the learning of the learned I will set aside. So again, we've got, um, the cross on one hand, and then we've got the world's wisdom and power, which sees the cross as foolishness. Then Paul says, where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it is the will of God through the foolishness of the proclamation, gospel, to save those who have faith. So again, he's saying, wisdom can't get there on its own. You need the gospel, which includes the cross, which looks like foolishness. And then he says bluntly, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks alike, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So even taking that last part, he says, the Jews are looking for signs, but the cross is a stumbling block. Because, we'll talk about this more, but the whole idea of the Messiah is he doesn't lose, right? A Messiah who gets killed is by definition not the Messiah. Like, the one thing you don't do as Messiah is lose to the Romans. Like, so he can't be Messiah, right? Like, we proved it at 3 o'clock on Good Friday. Not the Messiah. That's why the resurrection is kind of important. Um, so it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it doesn't even make any sense at all. Like, why would you even talk about a man, let alone your God, being important if he can die on a cross, right? A, a, a horrible, shameful death on a cross at that. But then he says, but to those who are called Christ with his cross, that's actually the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so it's saying what looks like foolishness is actually wisdom. What looks like weakness is actually strength. So we've heard this before, right? You know this. You've probably heard this. Maybe even prayed on it, reflected on it. It's a great reflection um, for, for Paul. And he's talking to the Corinthians who, Corinthians are like, Corinthians are the wannabes of the Greco-Roman world. They're not a big, big, big town like Rome or Antioch or Alexandria. And they're not even as big as their neighbor Ephesus and other places that Paul stops. Um, but they're kind of a port town that was up and coming. So they would be like the yuppie community, you know, like outside of a big city. Um, you know, so they're trying to like, you know, make their place in the world. Um, and, and so he's, he's talking, that's why he talks a lot about power, wisdom, riches, because those are things they're chasing hard at that moment um and he's he's he kind of helps them understand weakness and poverty and foolishness are actually the things okay one last thing we want to read from here if you just look at the next chapter so probably even on the same page for you um beginning of chapter two those first five pages or first five verses um he puts this in context he says now notice this is now getting not just theoretical he's getting biographical and historical about his relationship with them. When I came to you, brothers, proclaiming the mystery of God, I did not come with sublimity of words or of wisdom. So I didn't come with fancy speech and eloquence. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, the only thing I'm going to focus on is Jesus and the fact that he died. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling, and my message and proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of spirit and power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. So he's still using that back and forth. And again, we've heard this. We're like, okay, right. But I want you to notice, when I came to you, brothers, proclaiming the mystery of God, I was resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Like, okay, that's cool. Like, he's coming to preach Jesus crucified. And we've been doing that for 2,000 years since, so we get that. But here's a place where a close reading puts it in context. Jump back a couple books to Acts. Go to Acts 18. Acts 18 is entitled Paul in Corinth. So this is the moment Paul was talking about, right? When he comes to Corinth, he says, when I came to you, I was resolved. Now we just assume that like that was his plan all along. Mm -mm. Flip back one page or one chapter. Chapter 17, the last thing that's probably in bold print for you is Paul's speech at the Areopagus. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. Actually, I'm not going to read any of it, but I just want to summarize it. Paul's speech of the Areopagus is very important. It's pretty famous, not even just in Christian world, but even in, in, in secular scholarship, because it's this moment where the gospel meets Greek wisdom. Paul goes to Athens. Athens is no longer a power base, but it's still the intellectual capital of the world. It's still the city of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. It's still where you go. You know, you might be a Roman centurion or a senator, but you send your son to Athens to get some good education, you know, and then you bring him back to, like, you know, run things in Rome or whatever. So it's still the place where people have those kind of deep conversations. And Paul comes to Athens... Um, you see that's earlier there. He comes there to Athens, and he's not alone at that point. Um, he comes to Athens, and he uh, decides, I'm going to try it. I'm going to go to the Areopagus, where anybody can give any talk on any day they want. And I'm going to go and ask if I can talk about my God. So he shows up, and they're like, ah, Jewish philosopher guy. Let's hear what you got to say. And so he gives his Jewish philosophy, but then he starts changing. As he tells the story of Israel, he's like, and now that Messiah has come. Uh, and in fact, if you look... Um, let's see. If you look at um, chapter 17, number 30, as he gets near the end, he's like, he's bringing them along. He's hitting all the right uh, Greek notes. He's quoting their poets. He's quoting their philosophers. And then he says, 30, God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent because he has established a day on which he will judge the world with justice. Through a man, he has appointed and he has provided confirmation for all by raising him from the dead. Now, we can imagine Paul's talk probably went for a long time. We know that a guy fell asleep and fell to his death out a window when Paul was preaching, right? So it's probably not one chapter or one paragraph. It's probably actually like a half hour, an hour long talk, kind of like this. Um, but when he, he summarized that as a man appointed who has provided confirmation by raising him from the dead. So here's Paul He's doing good, he's doing good, but eventually he has to tell the story of Jesus, his passion, and his death, and his resurrection. And what happens afterwards? 32. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, yeah, we would like to hear more about this another time. Right? They were basically like, yeah, great, I'm going to get your phone number, can we hear about this another time? I'll call you. Right? And then they just drift away. So Paul left them, but some did join him. And became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the court of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Turn the page. At least in mine is a page. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth. One sentence. He left Athens and went to Corinth. From the other letters, including Corinthians, we can piece together what happened. Paul's with, uh, I think it's uh, Timothy and Silas in Corinth. They go back to take money back to the church in Jerusalem. So Paul walks alone from Athens to Corinth. It's a couple days walk. Um, but as he's walking, you can tell he has this chance to ponder what happened. So here he is. He's made it. He is in the Areopagus. He's going to talk to the, the Greek philosophers. He's going to tell them about the God they've been longing to find. And he's doing great. They're loving it. They're loving his references. He is killing it until he brings up the dead guy. And then when he does that, all of a sudden they're like, yeah, uh, oh, dinner time. Uh, tomorrow? And then they run. And he gets a handful of people. And you can tell that he's probably crushed. Like this was his moment and he blew it because he tried eloquence wisdom, sublimity of words. He tried to match them in their own way. And you could kind of imagine Paul. We know Paul's temperament. He's, he's a hothead. He can, he can fume. He's on the walk to Corinth thinking about that. And he's like, you know what? I'm not doing that. When I get to Corinth, I'm not going to try and be Mr. I know your poets. I know your philosophers. I'm not going to try sublimity words. I'm going to show up and be like, a man was killed in the worst possible way. And then he rose from the dead. If you want to hear more, I'll be on this end of the marketplace. If not, I don't care. 
right? He decides that he's going to throw them the hardest line from the get-go. And if they want to hear it, he'll take it. And if not, he's not going to worry about it. All of a sudden, it makes a whole new sense of that Corinthians' intention. I would resolve to know nothing but Christ crucified. And a whole new understanding of why he says wisdom and eloquence can only go so far. The cross, no matter how wise and, and eloquent you are, will still be a stumbling block. It's a question of will you accept that the wisdom of the world is foolishness and what looks foolish is actually power and that weakness is made power through the cross. If you can handle that, talk to me. Otherwise, I'll catch you later. Right? It's a, it's a fascinating thing to be like, whoa, just two books interlocking suddenly give a whole new understanding of one of the most famous poetic parts of the Bible. And it gives us some insights in, into Paul's personality. Some other places. Um, you, you might have heard this one before. Jeff Cavins uh, does this one. Uh, I'm just going to uh, look at it really briefly. Genesis chapter 1. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 15. First book of the Bible, back at 15. Everyone's like, I can find Genesis. Genesis 15. This is the famous covenant with Abraham. I'm not going to read it all. Um, but we've all heard this at least every three years. Um, we see that uh, starting at, at verse 2. Uh, Abram said, Lord God, what, what good are your gifts to me? What will they be if I keep on being childless and have as my heir my steward, Eleazar? Abram continued, see, you have given me no offspring. And so one of my servants will become my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, No, that one shall not be your heir. Your own issue shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Just so, he added, shall your descendants be. Abram put his faith in the Lord, who credited it to him as an act of righteousness. We've all heard this countless times, right? But the, the trick here is that, how do we picture this? And I, and like last year on Totus Tuus, I had the, the teachers have the kids picture that scene. And everybody has the same scene that's in my picture Bible that I'll show you at Mass, which is Abram standing out, bright, dark, I mean, deep blue sky, thousands of stars, the Milky Way, count the stars if you can. Abram's like, no, that'll be my descendants. And Abram put his faith in God, who credited it to him as an act of righteousness. And they're like, yeah, because yeah, you couldn't count those. So that makes sense, right? And I think that's how we all read it, and all our picture Bibles show it that way. Um, jump down, though. That next paragraph is all about the sacrifice that God makes with him. Um, but I'm going to have you jump down to where he actually uh, 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 cuts it up. So jump to verse 10. He brought them all these animals, split them in two, placed each half opposite the other, and the birds he did not cut up. Birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Abram stayed with them. As the sun was about to set... A trance fell upon Abram, and a deep, terrifying darkness enveloped him. When did the sun set? After he does the sacrifice. So what time was it when he looked at the sky? Daylight. Now, it's possible that more time could pass, but if you read it word for word literally, the sun was out when he was taken out of his tent and told to look at the sky and count the stars, if you can. We assume it's if you can count all 10,000 of them. But what if it was, look at this bright blue, middle-of-the-day sky, count the stars if you can, just so will your descendants be. And you're like, and it's kind of cool with modern knowledge, where we're like, the stars are always there, we just can't see them. Abram, your descendants will be in the tens of thousands, the millions, but you can't see them right now. Abram believed in God, and he credited it to him as an act of righteousness. It's one act of belief if I can see the stars and you're telling me that's my descendants. It's another thing if you say, I can see no stars, but you promise me my descendants will be like them. That's kind of a cool little thing. Again, I can't take credit for that. That's, that's Jeff Cavins um, and maybe other people too. But that's a place where a close reading gives us something new. Sometimes it's not something like super like, oh, wow. It's just a cool moment where something begins to make a little more sense. Um, jump to uh, John, John chapter 2. This one is not going to change your entire spiritual life, but it's just an interesting thing to think about. This comes right out of Frank Sheets to Know Christ Jesus. Because sometimes we actually make Jesus a little too super powerful. Um, 
and we don't appreciate that, like, or maybe not make Jesus too super powerful. Sometimes we just think that there's too much going on, or we don't, like, give it its credit. So, John chapter 2, uh, verse 43. Wait a second. There's not a verse 43. Um, did I write down the wrong number? This is the problem of typing your stuff on your phone. Where's Nathaniel? Here, try chapter 1. Go back a bit. Chapter 1. 43. This is Philip and Nathaniel. Remember Philip, our guy who always raises his hand and always has the wrong answer? Um, 43. The next day, this is the very beginning of John's Gospel. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law, and also the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. But Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Here is a true Israelite. There is no duplicity in him. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? you will see greater things than this. Now, a lot of times we see this, and we, we assume that, like, you know, Nathaniel, like, has this moment of declaring him the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity in this moment. That, first of all, would probably not be going through Nathaniel's head when he says Son of God. More on that later. But even this, like, have you ever stopped to thought, like, why on earth would Nathaniel respond that strongly when he says, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree? Like, that's not a reason necessary to think that, like, someone is the Messiah come in the flesh, right? Like, that, that's a pretty, you know, odd sort of thing. And especially for him to react. Remember, this is Nathaniel who just talked smack about Nazareth, right? Who just said, like, nothing good can come from there. You know, like, you know, Crete. Can anything good come from Crete? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, we have a Cretan in the room. So, um, you know, but, you know, you, you name some small town that everyone makes fun of, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, everyone responds that way. So what is it? I think what she points out here is what do we have to go on? Um, all we have is that he, he said, I saw you under the fig tree. He said, here's a true Israelite. There's no duplicity in him. Some people read that as there's actually duplicity in him and he's mocking him because he was just talking smack about Jesus and Nazareth. I think that's unlikely. I think Sheed has the right point. It seems like under the fig tree, Nathaniel must have been pondering something. Maybe Nathaniel's thinking about like a land deal that his buddy is offering him. Or maybe Nathaniel is thinking about some other like opportunity where he had the chance to be duplicitous. But he made a decision of, no, I'm not going to do it that way, or I'm going to do this, or I at least need to offer this to my friend first. That would be fair. So then when he comes walking to Jesus and Jesus says, there's no duplicity in him, he's like, how do you know me? And he's like, oh, I know you. I saw you under the fig tree. And then he's like, under the fig tree, I was making a decision that was hard. I did make a sacrifice, but it was the honest thing to do. And that's why he can be like, okay, yes, now I'm following you. Again, not a super hard thing to come by, but we just glaze over it. And a guy like a Frank Sheed, he's not going to use a ton of other sources. He's just helping us read closely and pull an extra thing out of there. Like, that's what's going on. Jesus is able to see something that makes a connection. Okay, so that's just an example. Like, these, these don't have to be, like, super aha moments. They can just be um, little, little things to help us. I'm trying to debate. What time is Mass? 11? I have a point I want to make here. I'm going to go ahead and make it, and then I'll just shorten other things accordingly, because I think it fits here. The last thing I want to say about, the, about understanding Scripture, one of the big reasons we need to read it is because we get taught not by the Scriptures. We've been taught mostly by the creeds. If you think about it, we, not just Catholics, but even Protestants, don't do a lot of Scripture reading. Even Protestants who think they do, don't. What they read is certain parts, and especially the Gospels get lost, right? If you talk to an evangelical about Jesus, he's going to quote a lot of Paul at you, and some Hebrews, and maybe the occasional one-liner out of the Gospels, right? John three sixteen. hey, I knew a verse. Um, or he'll quote, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the Son of Man uh, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Ah, there's your atonement theology. What's happened is we've separated 
the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the stories they contain with a lot of detail from the Gospel, which becomes shorthand for just, yeah, the whole story, right? We were in sin. Well, let's start off. We were good with God. Adam, we've botched it. Then we're in sin, long time in sin. Jesus comes. He's God made man. He saves us. He rises from the dead. Now we just wait to go to heaven, right? That becomes the gospel, the shorthand version of what's supposed to happen. And I think part of that comes out of the, from the creeds. N.T. Wright makes this point that it's not the creed's fault. The creed's job, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, were to deal with what the fight was. And the fight at the time was, who is Jesus and how is he like the Father? Is he the same as the Father? Is he the Father come down to earth? Is he a human who has a close relationship with the Father? Is he God in a human suit? Right? How do we work that out? And that was the job of the creeds and why we have the long thing of, you know, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, consubstantial with the Father. But notice what happens. We literally take the Apostles' Creed. Uh, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He literally gets conceived and born, and then the next thing after a comma is crucified and died. We utterly skip the entire public life. And notice, in the creed, we even skip everything before that. I mean, it's literally, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his Son. So God made the world, then Jesus came, then we're saved. And again, that's the job of a creed. A creed is meant to be this super dense, super clear creedal statement. The problem came not from the creeds, but as time went on, it became an easy way to teach the faith. So what do you do when a, an adult comes to RCIA? Well, you make sure that they know the creeds. You use the catechism here, and you walk them through the creeds. Um, and so you, they, know, they learn about the Father, they learn about the Son, which usually means a discussion of he's God and he's man, and he's our Redeemer, and he died on the cross, and he rose, and stuff like that. And we totally skip the other 80% of the gospel, right? Between the infancy narratives, joyful mysteries, and the death and resurrection, sorrowful and glorious, we just skip. The rosary is 800 years old, and for 800 years, that's all we had. We followed the creeds. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, died, buried, rose, right? We skipped the other part in between and just kind of said, eh, that's filler. Or we said, well, the Gospels are important because the miracles show that Jesus is God and his instructions tell us once we've been saved how we need to live our lives and stuff like that. But we just skip all the rest, again, because we started to make them our te- The 92 questions. It's a great way to make sure your fifth graders know their confirmation info, but it doesn't teach the Gospel or the Gospels, right? It becomes overly simplified. And so that's why reading the scriptures is good for us, because we get the rest of the picture then. And again, notice that not only did we skip all of Jesus' public life, we also skipped all of the story before that. There's no mention of Abraham or Moses or David, and Paul couldn't fathom that. The gospel writers couldn't fathom that, because they're chock full of those guys when they tell their story. In fact, final comment here, even the Catechism of the Catholic Church notices this problem, because the Catechism Part 1 is based on the Creed, so literally after it has the virgin birth, the next thing is that it has to be like, hold on. <laughs> it says, Concerning Christ's life, the Creed speaks only about the mysteries of his incarnation and the Paschal mystery. It says nothing explicitly about the mysteries of his hidden or public life. And then it gives like a couple pages there because like, we missed those. Again, the creed didn't do anything wrong. It was when the creed became our only tool for teaching that we started only having the outside edges. He's incarnate and born. He dies and he rises. And we miss the stuff in between. So realize that, well, it's not as always cool to read Jesus' public ministry or to read the Old Testament as reading, you know, the wise men, or his time in the garden, or his appearances to the apostles. If we only have part of that, we only have part of the story. So part of us learning this is so that we can have the gospels that the gospel comes out of. And while we need the gospel, the creed, the, the, the nugget of the story, so that we are on the right path, we get so much more if we put the two together. And again, we're not losing the relationship by having that. We're actually making it better.